everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Nervous State, a new monthly magazine show from Dublin Digital Radio. Every fourth Sunday we'll be with you through the afternoon hours. We want to use this show to get to grips with the collective head melt that is our lives at the moment. We'll be exploring current upheavals from social, political, cultural and economic perspectives. Each month the Nervous State Collective will chat to a diverse range of guests. We'll try to comprehend the state of the nation and create a space for discourse that you might not find on Brendan O'Connor. We want to balance chat with music, politics and with culture, and we want to show you that there are a range of ideas out there that are not being given room to breathe in the current Irish media landscape. So it's been a strange few months, hasn't it? Crisis piling on top of crisis and tensions building. Whether it's climate, racism, housing, high cost of living, looming economic collapse, not to mention our current favourite, a global pandemic. A lot of us are already in a constant nervous state. So we want to find a productive way to firstly understand what's going on and then hopefully channel this in our discussions. If you've been feeling like things are all about to kick off, you're not alone. Nervous State is here to help you and ourselves navigate this new normal. The episodes will look like this. We'll be joined each month by Dublin Inquirer, who will give us a lowdown on their major news stories for the last month. Another regular feature each month will be a deep dive into an Irish label, musician or collective, where we'll chat to them about their influences, ideas and what they're putting out there. We'll have a regular panel discussion reflecting on some of the big things that have happened each month in our own nervous state. As well as these key parts of the show, we'll also have shorter interviews and features with various folks doing interesting things across Irish public life, whether that's art, politics, music, literature, academia, and lots more. And we want this to be your show, so if you want to get involved with the collective, hit us up at nervousstate at dublindigitalradio.com. Get in touch if you have any ideas, requests, we'd love to hear from you. itself on being reader funded and focusing on old school shoe leather journalism. Just last month it was awarded a €25,000 grant from the European Journalism Centre to delve into a new beat. So here's Sean Finnan talking to Stephanie Costello, editor of Dublin Enquirer, on their stories of the month and telling us all about that grant. Okay so you're listening to Nervous State on Dublin Digital Radio and we're joined now with Stephanie Costello from uh, the Dublin Enquirer, editor of the Dublin Enquirer. And yeah, so Stephanie's going to be talking us through a few few of the stories that have been published over the last month. So, but just first of all, how are you, Stephanie? How's your lockdown been? <laughs> hey, Sean, how are you? Um, yeah, lockdown's been... Uh, <laughs> lockdown has been... Lockdown. Really <laughs> rather uninteresting and quite banal, yeah. Um, looking forward to getting out into town again, and I don't know, am I allowed to say having some cans on the canal? Is that yeah? Apparently, it's legal. I've seen Leo Brock here today <laughs> saying, I saw, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he cleared that up. <laughs> so, yeah, me too. It's it's so weird because the last few weeks has been so nice that we could just sit outside and have cans, and now the weather has changed when the laws are changing again. I know I saw on Twitter people were saying it's because of the leaving search uh, being cancelled that obviously the weather gods have decided to punish us in some yeah. way. They should have sucked it up and did the leaving search. <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah there's 
we're going to talk about two stories. I think the first story that we're going to talk about is by Leisha Nealon on whether a new homeless hospital in Drumcondra should be privately run. Yeah, so um, this was a story that came out last month now by our um, reporter, Leisha. Um, essentially what it is, is in May, just this May gone, um, a new privately run homeless hostel was opened in Drumcondra. Um, due to accommodate up to 40 people at a time and the contract is for four, five years so um, according to the DRHE and that's the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive for people who might not know that they're basically the branch of Dublin City Council who look after anything to do with homelessness yeah. um, that contract's going to be for five years um, and the average day will be between three and six months and it's all bunk beds so what Alicia found out was that there are family connections between the people who are running this new private uh, emergency accommodation and another company which runs an emergency accommodation for asylum seekers in County Monaghan, um, where there have been complaints made in the past um, about standards. So um, there's approximately 2,900 actually adults in private hostels in this country, as is at the moment. And something I didn't know, actually, uh, Sean, was that most emergency accommodation for homeless people in Dublin is run by private companies. And that's a problem because of many reasons. But as Leisha kind of um, talks about in the article, um, essentially, it's, it's, it's kind of widely known that like national standards for um, these hostels are kind of not being adhered to um, in yeah. these private hostels. So if you're homeless and you go into emergency accommodation, there are things that you're supposed to to have, such as, you know, like assessments, uh, like a key worker, um, support, planning, um, education, which is huge um, because, you know, a lot of people that go, not a lot, but some people that we spoke to that go in there don't actually have reading and writing. So yeah. um, trying to fill out forms or trying to get a job or trying to um, even you know, do anything day to day, they're limited to do that. So um, Leisha spoke to a person who has lived in these privately run emergency accommodations and um, they had confirmed to her essentially that um, there are no caseworkers and there are no education, there's no so education what training. Are case, what are caseworkers? Yeah, so um, I might not get this 100% right, That's- but it's my understanding essentially that the caseworker is somebody who's assigned to you um, by the state who would come and meet with you maybe once a week and they would help you with anything to do with um, helping you, let's say, set up a bank account or helping you um, work on your CV. It's essentially just a person who is assigned to you to help you get up to a certain level to which you can kind of you can kind of function in society. Um, They'd just just be checking in with you. It would just be that kind of one person, I guess, that you could call um, that you know has your back or a safety net, I I guess. And And they're really important. Yeah, there's no caseworkers in a lot of these privately run homeless hostels. No, and overwhelmingly um, Dublin homeless people are, are in overwhelmingly privately run yeah. um, hostel here. So it is a it is a big problem. There's also been reports of uh, mistreatment as well by staff. Um, 
and Peter McVeary, who is the um, the homeless advocate, yeah. or the anti-homeless advocate, I should say, um, is, yeah, ha- has also said that essentially there should be inspections, but he's of the mind that there are no inspections happening. So, um, so who has yeah. oversight, I suppose, of, is it Dublin City Council? Is it? No. So uh, essentially it's kind of one of those really technical things insofar as D or H-E, um, essentially let, they, they pay a private company to do this, yeah. to do this job. Um, and it's essentially for profit homeless services. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the DRHE will give these private companies a contract. Um, like you'd see in any sector of Irish society, you get a contract to do something. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a tough one because essentially it doesn't come back to the, uh, the DRHE. It, it'll, it would come back to the company in question. I'm going to keep moving because like yeah. we've only 10 minutes and we're at six and a half already on one story. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a short and, one. Okay. Yeah. So this is another story by Leisha. Um, yeah. Yeah. People were saying that they had to leave their houses despite, the, you know, there was a government ban on evictions over yeah. the past two or three months. I think it's coming to an end at the end of June. You're, you're dead right with everything you said, Sean. Um, the government announced an eviction ban during COVID-19 and what we did at the Inquirer last month was we did a survey um and we asked everybody who is having problems with their landlord basically to get in touch with us and, and tell us what it was so this story is based around a survey that we did right uh, so we kind of crowdsourced we crowdsourced our sources um and essentially the story is looking at three case studies of people who were being evicted during COVID-19 despite the fact that um the government had a blanket ban on all evictions um, we don't have time, I don't think, to do all three, but I can tell you briefly yeah, what two yeah, of them are. They're, they're quite, they're quite um, I think they're quite important. Essentially, one of them is a, is a man who was living in a bedsit in Sandy Gove for a year. But this bedsit is technically, like we talked about last time, it's, it's actually private emergency accommodation. So not all um, private emergency accommodation is bed, in, um, bunk beds and big rooms. They can be bedsits, yeah. um, individual houses. So um, he was threatened with um eviction and when he got he was basically told that he was being moved to a a b&b in swords um which is another uh, emergency accommodation which again is quite a step down you know to be in a bed sit and then go back but essentially Leisha did some reporting and what came out of it was quite interesting Dublin City Council had said that um you don't you basically there are no tenancy rights in emergency accommodation yeah yeah that's so great. in that case the eviction ban didn't um apply to this person so this person had also said that um it was obviously really stressful for them yeah. and they reported to our reporter Alicia that they couldn't go out they, w- they didn't want to leave their house to exercise or get shopping because they were very afraid that the locks would be changed um also they were given no notice time yeah, they were very stressed at the fact that they might have to find a person with a van and move all their stuff out during the height yeah. of lockdown. Yeah, um, a second story was um, actually a student who was studying in Trinity College um, in a private, just 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 a normal private accommodation, 
and the landlord basically um, threatened to change the locks um, um, said that they were transferring the ownership of the house to their son which happens you know that does happen quite often in general Um, this was pre-corona then while coronavirus hit this person got back in touch with the landlord and said um, I have exams happening right at this moment and also I can't look for another place to live right now because there are no house viewings Um, can we please do something to which the landlord refused said that he was sticking to his original agreement Um, so the landlord did actually speak to us and that's what they said Um, the landlord said that the girlfriend and the son were moving in Um, the landlord also did actually say then at the end that um, they didn't actually evict this person in the end but that was because this person actually decided to leave okay so there it sounds like there was pressure put on them to leave during the height of the coronavirus okay (laughs) so just finishing off there i see dublin inquirer also got a 25 grand grant from european journalism fund yeah the covid um emergency journalism fund so big news for us um 25,000 euro is a lot of money uh for a small newspaper like us um by far the biggest grant we've ever received to date i think the last one was about two three grand so i don't know if um your listeners are aware of us or the work we do but um what we've decided to do with that money on top of bringing all our full-time staff members up to a living wage now um and we are paying freelancers um a higher rate now we're also hiring um and we positions are basically open we're hiring a freelance reporter um to cover the immigration system in ireland um, and the deadlines for that is the 16th of june by midnight so that was Stephanie Costello from Dublin Inquirer chatting there with Sean Finnan. The links to both those articles will be in the notes of the show once it's up on the archive. And you can also subscribe to Dublin Inquirer on their website. Next up, we have an exclusive track from Nash Payne's debut album, Blind Man the Gambler, which is released on Dublin label, Where the Time Goes. Full album is released today. And you can pre-order the album on Bandcamp. And hopefully we'll be catching Finn live in the not-too-distant future. All the music from this episode is taken from Where the Time Goes. This label has been busy releasing one killer release after another, and we're delighted to be airing exclusives from the new tape from Nash Paints. We'll also be speaking to label head honcho Dean McGraw a bit later, so hang tight for that. But right now it's new and exclusive Nash Paints with gold. Thank you. 
be 2001, you're projecting us into the 21st century. I brought along my son Jonathan, who in the year 2001 will be the same age as I am now. Maybe he will be better adjusted to this kind of world that you're trying to portray. The big difference when he grows up, in fact, if we wanted to wait for the year 2001, is that he will have in his own house, not a computer as big as this, but at least a console to which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information he needs for his everyday life, like his bank statements, his theater reservations, all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. He'll have a television screen like these here and a keyboard, and he'll talk to the computer, get information from it, and he'll take it as much for granted as we take the telephone. I wonder, though, what sort of a life would it be like in social terms? I mean, if our whole life is built around the computer, do we become a computer-dependent society and a computer-independent individuals? In some ways, but they'll also enrich our society because it'll make it possible for us to live really anywhere we like. Any businessman, any executive could live almost anywhere on Earth and still do his business through a device like this. And this is a wonderful thing. It means we want him to be stuck in cities. We better live out in, in the country or wherever we please and still carry on complete interaction with human beings as, as well as with other computers. That clip you just heard was Arthur C. Clarke predicting the internet. In the words of our own Nostradamus, Josepha Madigan, the pandemic has turned the world on its axis. We might have worried we were, we were living too much of our lives online before this, but since lockdown we now seem to be spending every wakened minute glued to a screen. It's had huge impacts on how people work. With more people zooming in than ever before, what does this mean for the future of work? Our Donegal correspondent Patrick McCusker caught up with Siobhan McKeown, author of A Life Lived Remotely, over the video conferencing application that you all hate. Given that social distancing guidelines could well be enforced for the rest of 2020, there's a very good chance that many who've switched to working from home could opt to continue doing so afterwards. One study done by the National Recruitment Federation in Ireland showed that seven of 10 remote workers surveyed would be willing to continue with in the future. COVID-19 could accelerate one of the biggest workplace changes in history. Remote working isn't entirely new, of course, and some people have been working online for more than a decade. One such person, Siobhan McKeown, wrote an excellent book called A Life Lived Remotely, that explored how the internet was revolutionizing workplaces, the nature of the working day, and, in some ways, ourselves. I'm delighted to say that Siobhan has very kindly agreed to join us here on DDR to share her insights into the nature and importance of these changes. Thank you very much for joining us, Siobhan. Thank you for inviting me. So, having worked as a self-employed and then a more traditionally employed person remotely, do you think remote working has blurred the boundaries between the two? I'd say one thing that I see a lot more of is that employees of companies are expected to be entrepreneurial. And I see that sometimes in things like uh, even in job descriptions and stuff. I mean, if you're a freelancer, you do have to be entrepreneurial in order to like find work. You've got to be very self-starting and you've got to go out and like find clients um, and you know, you want to grow your business. And uh, so you definitely need to be doing that as a freelancer. As a remote worker, when you're working from home, there is an element of that as well, um, because you're not in an office and you're often just left to your own devices. Um, so I think that aspect 
has changed quite a lot. I, I think there are companies that are probably working remotely that have much higher levels of, say, surveillance mm -hmm. on people. Um, so they'll have things installed in their computers. In fact, I had these in the past. I used to work as a chat moderator uh, 10 years ago, maybe longer than that, 15 years ago. Um, and they would like monitor what was going on on my computer. Um, so in those instances, you're just kind of doing the work by rote. But for a lot of remote companies, you are expected to be, you know, able to, you know, self-start, be entrepreneurial, as, as they say, um, and you know, get on with your own tasks in much in the same way as a freelancer would. Remote working and I suppose the Internet in general do integrate a lot of the ideology and the I suppose the problems of neoliberalism into our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's like the atomization of people. Um, we, we're all off on our own, in our own little bubbles, and then we're expected to be, you know, a lot of it is the language around entrepreneurialism and, you know, pushing yourself forward and everything is left reliant upon the individual to, like, be doing things themselves, um, which, you know, can be good, but if you do that in the absence of anything else, in, any, in the absence of any safety nets or any other structures, then it can lead to, like, high levels of anxiety, high levels of worry, you know, concern that you don't really know what's going on. That's something that I worry about <laughs> when I'm speaking to people online all the time. You don't really know what's going on in their lives. So there is a much higher degree of atomization as a result of that. Could you give me an example of how working remotely removes the safety nets that, say, a traditional office environment would have? So practical things, you know, it's just your setup. Mm -hmm. um, you need to have, like, decent internet to, to work remotely. You also need to have, like, an ergonomic workstation, which is something I find because I ended up with, like, really bad neck and back problems. So you need to... Um, uh, some companies will just make remote workers provide this for themselves uh, and then other companies will actually uh, provide those um, and then there's just the, like the safety nets of being with other people who can see when there's a problem uh, one thing that I've really noticed through my my career working remotely is that um, it's very easy to ha for people to hide if they've got they're having a problem if you see someone you're in an office with them and they're um you know you can tell if they're like upset but you can tell if there's maybe a bit more reserved um and therefore you know then there's usually you know a safety net at work uh of people who will try to help you it's much more difficult for that to happen in a remote context you've got to like really be tuned in, in, into someone and they're like their their idiosyncratic ways of communicating online um and so that becomes much more difficult yeah, I definitely agree with you about the ergonomics workspaces. I've got a Richard III level hunchback since I started working from home. Oh, I know. I, like, my neck, I, I had an x-ray on my neck and it was basically straight. Apparently it's supposed to have a curve. So now I've got, like, a full, like, stand and monitor and all of that sort of stuff. And, and if I don't have that, I start to feel, like, physically not very well. A lot of people are sitting on their sofas, like, looking down at their screens, um, which is really, over a long period of time, that can be really damaging to your body. Yeah, it's very much what not to do. So yeah. now, something that a lot of writing about the rise in remote working over the last few months has drawn attention to is that many remote workers find themselves working for longer hours without any financial benefit. Indeed, 
nearly half of all remote workers surveyed recently expect to have a reduced income this year. If, in practice, many remote workers are their own boss, what do you see as being the ways employees can avoid being taken advantage of if remote working is to become much more normalised in the near future? Companies should be responsible, um, but often they're not. So uh, it, it will often fall on the employee to do that. I think that one of the most important things you can do is to, to set boundaries and expectations with your employer and one of the other people that you work with. Um, uh, and, you know, if you're, say, a leader or a manager in an organisation to, like, role model those expectations, so, like, not being online at the weekends, not responding to emails at the weekends, um, you know, being clear what your working hours are and saying that you're not going to be responding to things after them. Um, you know, if if uh, if employers are expecting you to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that, that seems well outside the bounds of, like, a, you know, 40-hour working week that you're being paid for. Um, so I would definitely be having conversations with an employer about that. This, I suppose, feeds into the problem with regards to how remote working blurs the distinctions between a self-employed person and a traditional employee. So, mm-hmm. for instance, even putting together the ra- this radio show, uh, none of us have been in the same room at the same time throughout the, pr- mm-hmm. throughout the process of making it. So there are several people, the, whereas traditionally there would be several people in a room, all of whom know each other, at least socially, and mm-hmm. work together to build a team. That's dissolved. It's working um, in isolation and reporting back and forth as the work is done. Yeah. My day job has gone in the same direction. And there are several people mm-hmm. in the office who I probably won't see this side of Christmas. Yeah. Uh, if there's a traditional work, if the traditional workplace and the dynamics within it, so I can look sideways and see what my colleagues are doing, I know if I'm being mysteries or not. If that's dissolved and you are in practice your own boss, how can you stop and what real avenue do you almost have to stand up to an employer if you were being overworked or as in the case of these people who work remotely, inadvertently doing longer hours to no real end. If you're an employee, you've got certain rights. Um, so if you're working, if you're a member of a union, you might speak to your union. Uh, you could speak to your HR person at your company. Um, and so I, I would say that there would be avenues there. Um, in terms of contractors, and freelancers is different like a, a lot of people who work remotely are contractors which means that they don't have any job security any job stability and so in in many ways they are reliant on the sort of whims of the company to, in order to to do the right thing so that does make it much more difficult and sometimes you just have to be brave and sometimes you just have to accept the fact that uh this it might not work out like if you're going to speak up and you're just a contractor they might be like well we just don't want you around anymore and that's kind of the shit reality of it we are in a sort of sort of contractor freelancing gig economy type environment where where people have much fewer rights now something i noticed is that you've been working online for over 10 years what have been the biggest shifts in those 10 years with regards to what's expected and what is normal in your role my role's quite changed quite a lot. So I've been like a freelance writer and I've, I've worked, I worked for WordPress. 
um, and now I work for like a, a web development company. Uh, I think the 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 biggest thing is how easy it is to just run a company online. Um, I think it's different. The current situation with COVID makes it a bit different. Like it's not easy to just like be a co-located company where everybody's in the same office and then all of a sudden start working from home. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it is easy, you know, it's totally possible to run a company remotely. Uh, we work with people all over the world. We build like webs, websites and applications for like people in, you know, the Far East, in America and Australia. And it, it all works really, really well. It's all really smooth. And I think that sort of the normality of it is, um, you know, something that's sort of, I would say, changed. Looking forward from here, I suppose. Now, seven of 10 people surveyed claim they'd be happy to continue working from home remotely. Do you think those people are being naive or do you think it actually could become much more normal and people could adapt it, even though we just discussed some of the problems it creates? I think that uh, there are some potential problems. You know, companies need to adapt themselves to become sort of remote friendly, like you were saying about um how different it is to like all be isolated from one another and not be in an office. Um, so you need to have ways to like recreate a digital office where people can like just be around, you know, chatting to each other and, you know, have people that they can bounce ideas off. Another, I think big challenge that's going to come up is when some organizations return to the office and some individuals within the organizations don't. Cause one thing that I've, I just, I don't think I've ever seen it work really well is when you have teams which are partly remote, partly in an office, because people who are remote always feel completely cut out from everything that's going on in the office, and people in the office just make decisions and don't update the other people. There's definitely a lot to think about there, and it's something I think we're all going to have to get used to to some degree or other over the next couple of years. So that was Patrick McCusker, again speaking to the author of A Life Lived Remotely, Siobhan McKeown. And you can follow Siobhan on Twitter. You're listening to Nervous State on Dublin Digital Radio, a monthly magazine show that aims to get to grips with the collective psychic turmoil that's being inflicted upon us all. Our next guest is Dean McGrath, head of Dublin label Where the Time Goes. If there's one label in the city that has been giving artists the opportunity to express the experience of living in the neoliberal hellhole that is Dublin, it's Where the Time Goes. Sean Finnan catches up with him to find out what drives the label and the trials and tribulations of living in a place that makes it difficult for artists to survive. The track you are listening to during this interview is The Bank by Rising Down on her recently released Petrol Factory. College Green Dublin is the centre of Ireland's banking and commercial world. All the big banks are there. But the Central Bank of Ireland, which was established in 1942 as a controlling financial institution, had only its head office in College Green. As the central bank's finance control functions grew more and more complex, it had outgrown its own quarters and was forced to rent extra office space in several different parts of the city. Then, in 1972, came a decision to build a new central bank building within, literally, a stone's throw of the original location to build in Dame Street. The main contract goes to the firm of John Siskin's son, the contractors who have already built so much of modern Ireland. Their first task is to feed the data to the Siskin computer. A manual critical path program is first prepared, 
using the drawings and builds the quantities for the complex. This includes more than 2,000 separate program activities, which are recorded on data input sheets, punched onto punch cards, and fed into the electronic brain. The computer digests the data briefly, and then begins to print out all the programs needed by the consultants, the specialist subcontractors, and by Cisco project management team. These programs were updated regularly in view of the many variables in a project of this size. close friends and yeah we were all you know making music like we're, we were pretty fresh at it you know practically buzzing about it you know what I mean we were going out a good bit going to gigs buying records listening to music and that was that was what our what our whole thing was was based on really was just music in one form or another as we were kind of getting more and more happy with what we were we were making uh, but also at the same time like you start to wonder like oh I wonder if you know people will want to hear this you know what I mean like will we put it up you put your song up on SoundCloud and people hear or you like you show it to other people and they you know they're liking it and you're just it starts to make you wonder a little bit you know but I don't think we were ever too far gone on the whole sending it around to you know these other outlets or labels or you know just yeah. practically strangers you know that way and asking them yeah. for their for their stamp of approval or whatever and um, yeah and, and where, where the time goes is basically just born out of like let's just do it ourselves like you know what I mean if let's get our music together present it in a certain way and see if anyone cares like you know what I mean and let's just see what happens we gave a brief to each other to say let's put like a half an hour of our music our own music together in some fashion whether you like a mix or an EP or whatever we'll put it up in a digital format and just put it out there and we'll see what happens and yeah that, that's how it started really. each complete floor is to be 
so the first like few releases were the digital kind of mixtapes or whatever you want to call them um, and then it kind of started to gain legs basically I, like we realized pretty quickly that people did want to hear it. it just gave me the onus to say like right well there's something here like let's let's keep going with it let's let's make it as you know but I, I also had this like like with buying records and physical releases like it's always in, in your mind that like this is what kind of solidifies you, you, the music is like having it in your hand you know that way being able to yeah it's on the shelf or whatever it's if just the physical physicality of it legitimizes it in some form you know that way so that the next step step was like yeah making a physical and yeah i think the first one was the on the last minute man record like a short 100 copies just white label and then from there it was the tapes yeah and like all the early tapes i think it's changed now but like they all had kind of subtitle pop boiler yeah uh, can you explain that I wanted to for it to be a series of like a, a small series of releases that they all were like linked in some way and um, the term pop boiler is like basically an, like an old literary term of when for a writer or an author or whoever that it's just a small piece of work that they put out that they produce quickly and put out quickly to make some money really okay and yeah, to, yeah. To keep to keep the pot boiling basically yeah. yeah and that that was kind of the idea that when i like spoke to like lee and colleen and stuff and sean it was just like just bash it out you know don't think too much about it just like don't think you need to do anything you don't need to accommodate anyone else it's just like just yeah put yeah. something out you know what i mean get capture whatever you're up to, you know, the way I'm going to put it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting approach as well. Like just to kind of get it out there quickly mm-hmm. and the quality of the work that came out as well. Yeah, was, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. Because I, I honestly feel like, um, that's, if you end up, you know, making something bigger than it is in your head, you kind of, you'll hold yourself back, you know, with your inner criticisms or, you're de- you'll just doubt it even more if you have this too big of a picture of it. But if it's just like, look, let's not make a big deal out of it. Let's just like snapshot, put it like w- what you have, finish it, and let's put it out. I think that's where you know the more honest kind of stuff happens. Is that kind of I suppose one of the advantages of doing kind of maybe a kind of a smaller kind of label as well it like gives the opportunity to kind of more like your community of artists that, mm-hmm. that you have around you to, gives them the opportunity to kind of get working I suppose give them confidence yeah. as well yeah big time I think so just like yeah you can really get caught up in trying to like knock it out of park or something the other way or yeah. you have to it has to sell you know that's yeah. a big word that yeah. gets thrown around a lot is like will it sell will it, will it not sell my what I wanted to do was just put all that aside and just say just do whatever you want like you know what I mean and then and then we'll go from there you know yeah and like it, it's interesting as well how that builds then so like the last two releases you know um, 
Rising Damp and All Times Now Nothing? Or is it mm-hmm. something else? I always yeah. get mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the, you don't have the pot boiler kind of subtitle there. That it's like, mm-hmm. as well as like allowing the artist's space to kind of like improvise and develop and get it out there quickly, allow the label to kind of build and get confidence as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Where, yeah, I think with with the pop, the pop boilers kind of had a, almost like a template presentation. So that kind of just, it kind of took, you know, you don't have to worry too much about the identity of it or like a narrative or anything like that. If, if, if you don't want it, you know, that way. Um, whereas with the rising damp and with the all times now, nothing I've read, they, they had, there is so much built into it that I didn't think the, I thought the pop boiler thing just restrained them a bit too much, you know, that way where, yeah, with Horizon Damp, it's its own thing, really. You know, it has its it's a world of its own, and hundred percent as well with the Tears of Your record is its own world. You know, I don't want to restrict them in any way. So when you're kind of like, I suppose, releasing something, especially the last few releases, is there kind of a certain thing you're looking for, kind of a certain energy, or is it? Can you even define it, or is it work that's just coming from your community? And you're thinking this deserves and needs to be released? Like, I definitely think that there is something that links them together. Yeah. I, I it's, a, it's not like a style or a genre yeah. or anything like that. It, word I use is a tone. I think there's a tone. Yeah. You know, or a perspective, maybe, that is shared with them all. Like, there's so much happening. So many people doing, like, really unbelievable stuff in Ireland in Dublin wherever and like the only thing in my opinion holding it back is there's not enough outlets for it do you know what I mean there's not enough platforms for people to get it out there that you know like you were saying earlier on about you know people feeling like they have to send it off to like strangers yeah. to like accommodate a certain know the london style the berlin style or whatever like the ireland thing is there it just needs outlets to yeah to be up there with them you know that way so and like how like it's kind of nurturing isn't it like like Mm -hmm. how would you see this kind of nurturing what would it look like i suppose would it be more magazines would it be all of it yeah everything yeah Yeah. magazines people writing about it people playing it people putting it out and Venues, clubs, just yeah. everything, all of it. You know what I mean? It's an ecosystem, you know. Yeah, like that. That's one thing. Like it does feel like over the last five or six years, like so much stuff has been kind of hollowed out. Mm. So from you know so many venues closing to people finding it more difficult to have the time or the space to make work because you know yeah. you have to work so much to pay your rent, then you can't make. A record in your small gaff but you can't you don't really have the money to pay for another studio because you're paying all your money on rent that like a lot of the work that has come out in the last few years is like it, it was probably a slog to even make it in the first place yeah and, like that is one thing that's really interesting about it, i suppose it, it, it's kind of something that i hear straining in a lot of where the time goes records but especially like petrol factory like rising dams petrol factory you hear that kind of anger at Dublin. <laughs> yeah, big time, yeah. Or maybe not at the city, but at like, you know, the, 
the the way the city is run by mm-hmm. certain interests mm-hmm. and certain people. Yeah, the constraints that we're under. Because, yeah, yeah. And like, you wouldn't have something like that released. Maybe you would, but you know, in so if you go to a different label, they might like erode the kind of local context of mm-hmm. the stuff and where this stuff was created from. Big time, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's just even more so why it's important to have the, that local ecosystem because that kind of perspective does might not translate to someone in wherever, you know what I mean, in Europe, where we're talking about specific things to for Dublin or Ireland or Cork or wherever, someone in Europe hears it in a different context and it's, it's like, I, I don't get it, you know that way, so. yeah. I suppose running the label, like uh, yeah, it, it it is there. There is a lot in it, like yeah, and especially when like the, the tapes, the tapes are grand, like you know what I mean, because we do everything is in in house, in house more or less, and yeah. uh, well, the records they definitely like are a different ball game, um, because just there's so much in them and you're dealing with shops and distributors and the money just like is astronomical basically when you get to yeah pressing records so the tapes you can like you can have the tapes turned over in a week or two you know yeah. and out the door because you're just selling i'm just selling them out my front room basically you know that way yeah. um and like do you feel like there's a good kind of support network within kind of i suppose stores and shops in not just dublin but in other cities here that you've built a relationship with now or do you think that there's some maybe some resistance from music shops to kind of smaller labels yeah, yeah I have like in Dublin anyway um, like we're all to eat there you know that's like such a good yeah. resource like Alden has basically like Alden I wouldn't be doing anything if it wasn't for all, you know, that way and yeah. his help and what he's kind of, the doors he's, he's kind of opened and the contacts I've made from him. So here at home, there is a lot of like, great resources and people willing to help each other, you know, that way. Yeah. yeah. But it can get a bit, a bit, um, kind of cold, I'll say, when you, when you start trying to get in touch with people abroad or shops abroad especially when it's like you know the tears for your record is not it's not a bestseller let's say you know yeah um, yeah it doesn't fly it doesn't fly out the door you know yeah. and unfortunately like a lot of shops and distributors and stuff like they're just looking at their bottom line you know that way and it can be hard to like get people on board or people yeah. to like respond to you and it can be very frustrating would you be able to, I remember one time you told me, like, uh, for the all times and um, now nothing about the first time you listened to that record. And I just think it'd be nice if you yeah. <laughs> said that story again. That record is by uh, Kalina and Alfie. Yeah. Um, like, become, I've become good friends with Kalina over the last few years. And Kalina is, like, uh, very hyperactive person with her work and stuff like that and she moved to Berlin a few years ago and she was like telling me about 
her friend that she's been jamming with and she was describing yeah. it to me and I was just like just send it to me you know what I mean just like yeah let's hear it, it sounds cool you know what I mean and uh, after a while of hearing it like uh, yeah me- being immediately struck by what, what they were doing and then yeah, trying to pin because Alfie as well is quite busy with his work and it can be hard to pin both of them down we eventually eventually like got them they were in the same place at the same time and they like bashed out a lot of stuff so it was originally supposed to be a pop oiler as well you know wow. uh, for on a tape yeah. and uh when Kalina and Alfie sent me the it was originally an hour I think over an hour maybe of of music uh i just had it on the laptop at the ed- edge of the bed and i was just lying in bed and looking out the window and uh yeah it just i don't know whatever it was i just got very emotional listening to it and i just kind of told myself that this <laughs> like 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 what i was saying about like having things out there in in, on, in the world that like is an artifact or whatever that people can trip over or find or whatever i just was like it had this has to this should be one of them things like you know what i mean it should be and that was it i just yeah i said it to them and we just made it made it happen yeah yeah it's a very special record like every time i stick it on you just drift into different parts of it that you didn't hear before (laughs) sometimes i'm like wondering if it's even the same record i listen to yeah 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 um yeah same here like it, every time it's on i'd stick it on all the time and it just i just tend to stop on down and just sit down and listen to yeah. it you know uh yeah there was another time when 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 they had edited it down to the you know the record is constrained by time a lot more than the tape and yeah i was actually kind of wor- worried that like editing it to much down would take away from it and I remember when they sent me the side A and the side B and I listened to it on the train on the way into work yeah and I just had to like take a minute before I went in to like <laughs> snap it over you know that way to like yeah yeah
back to the halfway point of the show and um, let us know if you're listening in on the chat this show is pre-recorded so we'll only be able to answer questions you have in the chat box but who knows maybe next time we'll be live in the studio and can give you a shout out in real time thanks again to ddr for having us on if you like what they're doing or even like what we're doing please consider subscribing to ddr so we can all keep going next up our resident kerry man martin lean took time out from the recent bank holiday to chat to bulilani mufako member of Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland, Massey, and a resident of direct provision in County Clare. The interview was recorded two days before the Black Lives Matter march from the GPO to the American Embassy, which was in honour of uh, the memory of George Floyd. This interview focuses on the appalling conditions that asylum seekers in Ireland live through and how direct provision is a chokehold by the Irish state on the lives of asylum seekers. Before we join Martin and Bulilani, let's refresh our memories of what our Taoiseach said in the Dáil last week, celebrating the contrast between the US system and ours. Relations of direct provision, you know, I absolutely accept what you say. Uh, a lot of direct provision accommodation is substandard, uh, and that needs to change. Uh, some of it's a good standard, own door self-catering. Some of it is a bad standard, uh, and that absolutely needs to change. Uh, and certainly um, the last government tried to do that, and the next government, I think, if I'm part of it, will want to do that. Um, but I think we need to um, understand the difference between direct provision and a man who was killed by the police uh, by having uh, somebody step on his neck. You know, direct provision ultimately uh, is a service offered by the state. It's not compulsory, it's not a form of detention, and involves people being provided with free accommodation, food, heat, lighting, healthcare, education, uh, and also some spending money. It's not the same thing as a man being uh, killed by the police. Uh, but it is substandard accommodation in some cases, and yes, that does need to change. So I'm here talking with Bulalini Mufako, and he's a asylum seeker in a direct provision centre. And what, what's the, which direct provision centre are you in? No, Glashin in County Clare. And how long have you been in direct provision? I've been in No Glashin since December 2017. When I initially claimed asylum, I was moved from, I went to the office in, in near Merion Square in Dublin, uh, claimed asylum, filed in all the paperwork. They rang a taxi for me to take me to Balsaskin, which is the main reception center. So from the 1st of November, right up to the first week of December, I would have stayed in Balsaskin. It's a reception center in Finglas. And then from there, I was transferred to Noklashin. What kind of place is Noklashin? Is, is it in the countryside? Yeah, it is. Um, it's not even accessible by public transportation. Like um, So it's in 15 minutes outside of Limerick City by car. Um, if you wanted to walk, I think it would take about 45 minutes or an hour or so to walk to town. Very rural, like when you go for a walk, the only thing you might see is a cow or a horse or a pony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and um, how many how many other people are in the direct the direct vision center with you there? Before the pandemic, the capacity of Noklishin is 250. So before the pandemic started, we would have had about 249 people or so in the centre. Now it's just around 200 or so. And I know like, that being in direct provision at the best of times is very, very challenging. It's, 
experience and like I presume during COVID the whole COVID-19 thing it uh it it must have felt an awful worse. so how was your own ex- experience been so far it's very uh, uh, uh frustrating not to be able to have that control so you're being told by the government to keep two meters apart from other people whereas you have this other stranger that you live with who has their own life and you have no idea how they're living their life like he also has no idea how i'm living my life uh, whether or not i'm adhering to that social distancing and we come back together and you uh, uh expected to share that one tiny bedroom you also also expected to use communal toilets for instance in Oklahoma and communal showers um, then you have to go for your meals in the canteen where you all congregate together gatherings are banned like restaurants are closed you can't go into a restaurant but here we are in the canteen and you have to go and sit and eat our dinner our lunch in fact the security staff uh, stopped asylum seekers from taking food out of the canteen uh, into their rooms using their cutlery so you have to use your own food container if you don't have a food container then you have to stay in the canteen and have your food uh, in the canteen so it is quite frustrating not to be able to have agency over your life because most of the guidelines that are published by the HSE they require uh, 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 an individual to take responsibility and you cannot do that when you cannot decide who you live with. Um, yeah. You can't decide who you go to bed with. You can't decide who, who you share your toilet, uh, bathroom, and shower, communal showers uh, with all over. And when we've seen people, um, including children, testing positive, being the only uh, members of their families to test positive for COVID-19, whereas all the adults are finding you know, just one child in the family who tests positive. And the way they isolate families um, is that the entire family unit would go into self-isolation. Because okay. if you need a provision center, you don't have that much uh, room uh, for starters to be able to self-isolate. And so they would have been taken off to an off-site self-isolation facility. But the whole family, even the people who are negative in the family, would have been uh, self-isolating with uh, the, the one that is positive. And that's frustrating. Yeah, so they're basically putting them in a situation where they can all get it quite easily. Would that be correct yeah. if one person gets it? Yeah. 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 It, 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 there was a, a problem with uh, when the pandemic started, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland asked the Department of Justice to provide self-contained units for families and uh, uh, single rooms for each single asylum seeker in a direct provision center so that people could actually observe social distancing. The problem was that the Department of Justice refused to do that. So you ended up with, uh, direct, we know that direct provision centers would be congregated by nature, where you have uh, as many as six people in one bedroom. Um, there were seven men in one bedroom uh, in a direct provision center in Ennis. Uh, it's the Clare Lodge direct provision center, which was recently opened, I think this year, actually. Seven in, seven in a room. And you would have considerable difficulties um, keeping, um, because these are seven strangers from different parts of the world and quite um, uh, diverse in terms of language, age and all that. So when you put people like that in a a situation like that and you take away all their agency, it becomes very difficult for them to to observe any of the public health guidelines that we are being told to observe. And like, so, so for, instance, they, yeah. Yeah. for instance, if we look at the homeschooling thing a bit, like, was there any kind of help giving to, given to families that you know of about, about tools to help them with homes, the homeschooling? Or were they kind My of... understanding was that 
that kind of help would have come from NGOs. Uh, the state generally, yes, the state, uh, uh, while it has responsibility to provide material uh, for the material needs of asylum seekers like shelter and uh, food, um, they can tick a few boxes and say we've provided a bed and three meals a day. I've provided nappies. There are instances where they haven't provided nappies and baby formula to infants. And they can tick those boxes. But when it comes to other needs, they tend to abdicate their responsibility to someone else. So that would be NGOs and friends of the centers who come in and do the charitable work. And that is also problematic in, in the sense that you are framing asylum seekers as these needy, useless people who can't look after themselves. Actually, they could be able, they would be able to if you provide the supports, an environment that supports them actually living independently instead of being dependent on the kindness and good heart of uh, uh, Irish people. Yeah. I suppose like, okay, so like we, we, we've kind of read a lot about like, about people being moved to Cara Sabine Direct Provision Centre and stuff like that. So I kind of wanted to ask you, so when, when we hear about people being moved from one Direct Provision Centre to another Direct Provision Centre, is there any kind of consultation with the people before they're moved or how much notice do they get before they're moved? Is there any kind of like... No, there isn't. In general, in a Direct Provision Centre, I would remember this even from when I was moved to Nocnachin in 2017, uh, you get a letter in the post. It will tell you that the minister has now decided to uh, transfer you or disperse you. They used to use the word dispersal. I don't know now if they still use it in, the, in their new letters, but they used to use dispersal quite a lot. So the minister has now dis- decided to move you to a direct provision center and it would have your address in the letter, your new address. The first thing you do as an asylum seeker, you take your phone, you go to Google, you Google address to type in the address of Google, you're like, where are these people taking me? <laughs> so there wasn't much consultation between the, the asylum seekers and, and there isn't in general. And so it, it would be the same in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. There wasn't, there was, it was actually very short notice. People were given letters and told the bus will be here tomorrow and we'll pick you up. It will take you to your new direct provision center. And where are we going? People had no idea. And so they drove for hours and hours and hours from, uh, they were all taken from different hotels in Dublin, some were from Travel Lodge in Swartz, some were in the Clayton Hotel. These people who would have been staying in those hotels for just about a year, I think. Um, some were in Ballsbridge Hotel in, uh, in Ballsbridge. Um, and then they were rounded up and put into a bus to Kahisifin. In the middle of a pandemic, when people are being told to observe social distancing, they're taking all these people from different places, they put them on the bus, off they go to Kahisifin. When they get to Kahisifin, that must be very scary, like for, for for young kids, for instance, to be just like put into a bus and moved to a different place without any kind of like proper yeah, you warning. Are up, or... you're up, yeah, you, they were uprooted. Uh, some of them, the children uh, in uh, in Dublin would have had a crash. In fact, one, a few of the asylum seekers, because they had been in hotels in Dublin for a very long time, they qualified for the right to work. They, they exceeded nine months waiting for a first instance decision. And so they had the right to work. And some of them were actually working when they uprooted uh, from there and lost their jobs. That's, that's awful. And you know, with they the like, to, uh, 
you know, like the COVID nineteen payments that were given to people who's who lost their jobs because of because of it. Like, so was it, yeah. was was that payment extended yeah. to asylum seekers also who might have lost their jobs because of the? If the asylum seeker was not in a direct provision center, they would have gotten the the pandemic unemployment payment. But if they were in a direct provision center, which is most uh, uh, asylum seekers, they were rejected. Their applications for the pandemic were rejected. They said said you don't qualify. The state will give you a bed and three meals a day. Apparently, that's all a human being needs: a bed and three, meal, uh, three meals a day. Um, so it was quite uh, disgraceful and uh, discriminatory for the Department of uh, Employment Affairs and Social Protection to exclude asylum seekers, some of whom had just started working and were trying to save money so that they could actually get out of direct provision and yeah. live independently. And some of them would have had children that they had to now homeschool and buy learning resources for. Yeah, that sounds really bad. You're a member of Massey. Could you could you tell our listeners what 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 Massey is and what your what your your aim is? The movement of asylum seekers in Ireland was formed by asylum seekers in the year 2014 in Kinsale Road in Cork. Formed, and from then we've been campaigning to end the system of direct provision, um, to campaign for the right to work for all asylum seekers uh, in the state because. We actually uh, are keen to contribute to our upkeep and uh, look after ourselves. It's life, like the very essence of life uh, is, is, is work. It's part of that. Like it's an innate part of the essence of life. Like our own being uh, as human beings, you, you you can trace the history of humankind you will notice that human beings have always worked to either support themselves and their loved ones and have built a community around them to work. And that is taken away from asylum seekers and that huge implications on the person's self-esteem and how people look at themselves, how they see themselves when they are not allowed uh, can actually kill you. And so one of the things we campaign for is the right to work. And then the third thing that we campaign for is the right to education, because if people are going to work, then they should have access to education. Now, if you wanted to go into third level education, you would have to pay as an asylum seeker uh, international fees, unless you were lucky enough to get one of the few scholarships that are offered by the universities, then you would have to pay the high fees to have access to education, even the ETBs are now uh, restricting the causes that asylum seekers could have. And that's problematic because if you have a person waiting for nine months with nothing for the right to work, by the time a person gets a positive decision to stay in Ireland, it will mean that the state would have wasted that person's life while they were waiting for that decision, whereas they could have been actually integrating into Irish life so that they could live a meaningful life independently on their own without a job and things. So the the last thing that we also campaign for is regularization of undocumented people. Um, That means that stopping deportations. We know that there are children who are born in Ireland, uh, recently a 10-year-old who was born here, uh, who knew no other home except Ireland, was deported. Now you had the Taoiseach states asking the U.S. to regularize undocumented Irish migrants who overstayed their visa in the U.S. Um, but here in Ireland, 
government, the same Taoiseach leads a government that's deporting children who were born in the state, and that's hypocritical. And so we've campaigned for regularization of all undocumented people, just give people papers so that they can get on with their lives. Cool. I know lots of people, and there will be lots of people listening to the show who kind of like, who would like to help and would like to support to Massey. What can members of the public do to help you guys? The one is to subscribe to updates on their website. Um, every time you post something on the website, you would get an email um, that there was something posted and then you can have a look at what it is. And the second thing is would be to follow our social media accounts. And the third thing is would be to turn up when we ask for you to turn up. So if we have a protest, uh, please do turn up. Um, if we have an action, something happened for that. Um, so we generally rely on public support. We're not a, Masi is not funded by anybody like except for ordinary people. Uh, when we ask, uh, we, we do everything that we do with the support of locals, uh, uh, members of the public and other groups who act in solidarity with us. And so it's very important that we get people, uh, people's support in that regard.
In this next segment, Tommy Gavin hosts a panel discussion to talk through some pressing economic, political and environmental issues with our guests, trade union economist Michael Taft and environmentalist Sinead Mercier. So welcome to the panel. Our guests are Michael Taft, research officer at CIP2 uh, Trade Union and author of the political economy blog Notes on the Front, and Sinead Mercier, consultant on climate change, law and policy, currently working with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, previously at the National Economic and Social Council and the Green Party of Ireland. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here, Tommy. So we're at kind of a, a very, you know, unprecedented situation kind of politically and economically. What, what are some of the kind of economic narratives that, that you've seen emerging in response to this kind of health crisis, but also economic crisis? Michael, maybe first. Well, I think the first narrative, which has been a very positive one, has been that there is pretty much universal agreement that the government should borrow and spend what is necessary in the first instance to protect the economy because the state itself actually had to close down many sections of the economy and rightfully so for public health reasons. So in, the so in that first instance that it should protect uh, households, people, uh, workers, uh, those who are just hanging on to their jobs, those who've lost their jobs and to protect the businesses. And that should lead into a stimulus program to, uh, uh, to help get people back into work, businesses back up doing business, and uh, as far as possible within the, within the dictates of public health uh, to try to get things back to where they were. So that's a positive narrative that's come up. I mean, we don't hear anybody saying, uh, uh, oh, we shouldn't do this because we're borrowing too much this year. However, what is emerging is a narrative, and this is quite concerning, is a narrative that, uh, well, once we've gone through the protection phase, once we've gone through the stimulus phase, ah, then there's, you know, who's gonna pick up the bill? Uh, you know, who's gonna pick up the tab? Uh, we've gotta try to bring our public finances back into uh, stability. Uh, I think the Taoiseach said, we can't keep borrowing forever. Uh, so I think that, you know, uh, though it's still a ways off, I think by within, say, within the next couple of years, those kind of sentiments will be heard, uh, and then all of a sudden we'll be into this, well, uh, we only have so much money, so we have to prioritize our spending, uh, setting off one uh, category against another. Uh, it won't be called austerity, uh, but I suspect it will look very much and feel very much like it. Yes, um, I think there's... President Michael Higgins gave a report, uh, an interview recently to um, the Italian newspaper Manifesto saying that there must not be a return to austerity. But it seems like there kind of is an almost reluctant uh, consensus that there will be, that people are kind of assuming, well, they're like austerity, that austerity is inevitable. Is austerity inevitable? No, no, it's not inevitable, but um, uh, uh, there will be if you will, a kind of inertia that will bring us back to that place because that's the, um, that's the, the kind of standard response uh, of uh, so many, uh, uh, so many policymakers uh, because they operate within a very, within the strict confines of a very orthodox view of public finances. So uh, it's not inevitable, but a, 
And for those of us who don't want to go back to those days, in fact, for those of us who want to kind of go out and to someplace better, we will have to have a roadmap. Uh, it will have to be uh, feature not only the things that we deem desirable, but also things that to, to win over uh, majority opinion, people will have to believe it's feasible. So uh, we, have to, we avoid, to, to avoid the austerity thing, we shouldn't fall into the trap of saying, uh, well, we can have everything that we want within the next two or three years. That's not possible. Or that um, all we have to do is just tax the rich and everything will be okay. There will be difficult decisions to make on the way to a better place. Uh, but I think if we have that type of dialogue with people, uh, we're, we're more likely to win them over if they believe that we're being open and honest with them and having an honest dialogue. And we can show them that at the end of the day, it will be better. It will be better to have a single tier health service. It will be better to have affordable housing and affordable childcare. It will be better, it will not be a sacrifice. A Green New Deal is not about people making sacrifices. It's about a different way of uh, living uh, uh, in and with the environment. Uh, but those are challenges and we have to kind of avoid uh, we have to try to avoid shortcuts or just putting up a bunch of maximalist demands. So that's going to be as demanding uh, on us to do that as it is to actually fight what could be, uh, you know, the fiscal orthodoxy. In, in April, um, uh, an economist, the chief economist from Davy Stockbrokers, um, it was reported in the Irish Times that, uh, that this chief economist said that the, the pandemic employment payments scheme um, was too generous and it was creating an, a financial incentive to leave work. You know, is that part of uh, this narrative of uh, implicit austerity? Well, it's nice to know that uh, people are still capable of making nonsensical statements like they did 10 years ago in the last crisis. So, you know, I mean, those kind of comments don't really help the debate. What we should be doing is talking about how we are going to get people back into quality jobs, not just any old job, because there is this fear. I mean, there was 170,000 people working in the hospitality sector. That is not going to return for a long time, if ever, because for all sorts of reasons, changing uh, consumer uh, behavior, uh, uh, just the loss of permanent jobs and the length of time it takes to bring them back, when you have 170,000 people out of work looking for work and there's only like half of those jobs available, you are talking about a very dangerous situation of a race to the bottom in terms of wages and working conditions. So what we should be focusing on is incentivizing the creation of quality employment uh, with decent wages, decent working conditions, uh, standard contracts, and not these precarious contracts whereby people don't know from one week to the next when they're working, how many hours, etc. That would be an incentive. That would incentivize people to get back to work. You know, again, as I say, the fiscal orthodoxy is uh, extremely strong. So it's basically, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to cut people's payments to make it so financially difficult for them that they have to take up any old job that comes along. In this case, they won't be. There, there is no jobs coming along yet. And how much of a burden uh, to the state are, are these social transfers? Oh, they're, they're costly. I mean, there's just no question. I mean, it's very costly. I mean, what is it? Uh, 
uh, nearly a million people mm -hmm. are on, or 800,000, 900,000 on uh, either the emergency unemployment payment or having, you know, 70 to 85% of their wage subsidized by the state. Uh, of course, it's costly. Uh, but uh, you have to weigh that against not what it costs prior to the crisis. You have to actually compare that is what happens if you didn't have those payments at all? You know, what would be the real damage to the economy? And that's why I say, thankfully, uh, there is a consensus among people across the ideological spectrum that the government had to do everything possible uh, and spend as much as possible to protect uh, the economy, the people working in it, uh, the people who were losing out because of it, the people who were becoming ill in it with, uh, you know, with the coronavirus, uh, and the businesses. Uh, so yeah, it's costly, but it, if we hadn't taken that action, I mean, it, one can only imagine the permanent damage it would have been to the economy, how further down we would have been driven into a very deep, not just recession, but depression, and how long it would come out with it. So. I suppose you know that kind of brings us to um, the the government formation talks at the moment, and it seems like one of the the sticking points is uh, a seven percent reduction in um, emissions uh, being a red line. Sinead, maybe what what are the what are the the issues at stake, or what are some of the questions the parties are being forced to ask themselves? Um, well, I'm not actually privy to the negotiations, so I like I'm not involved with them. But I know there's an awful lot of speculation at the moment as well uh, on particular different issues. Um, but I, just from a climate perspective on, on what needs to be done, and maybe on a 7%, uh, it, it's actually Ireland's fair share of the cut to carbon emissions globally is actually around 8%. And um, so Barry McMullen and some members um, working with the EPA that document on that. Uh, so it's actually around 8% per year. The European Union wants to cut uh, emissions by um, about 55% uh, in a carbon neutral manner um, by 2050 and a lot of that has to be done by 2030. So the difficulty, I suppose, how do we get there? Uh, it's a massive question and obviously that kind of has to be front loaded as well. So taking those emissions cuts maybe as soon as possible rather than leaving it later. So one way to get to 7% is to, and following on from what, what Michael tapped, was saying there on jobs and how do you create jobs in this new economy. Um, one way to do that is to invest heavily in, say, peat restoration, forest restoration, and, and kind of soil restoration as well. So uh, it's gas having worked on this for such a long time. You felt that you were kind of banging your head against the wall. And what seemed relatively simple, I mean, moving board pneumonia workers from peat cutting uh, into peat restoration, a lot of the same similar skills, a lot of the kind of time uh, could be uh, in terms of like you have a lot of farmers that work part time on the bogs to cut during the summer uh, in order to supplement what is a very, very low wage, 16 grand a year. Oh, thanks. sorry, it's my phone. <laughs> but um, a very low wage, about 16 grand a year, and they supplement that, sorry, with turf cutting uh, for board pneumonia. But you can move all those workers immediately into um, peat restoration activities uh, and that would be brilliant for biodiversity point of view, brilliant for stopping flooding along the Shannon as well which is going to increase and increase and lots of knock-on costs then uh, for local people um, and it's also I mean it's a very it's a it's a good high quality job and I think that's kind of a 
in terms of what, what do we build from here? What do we create from here? As Michael was saying, we have a possibly decimated hospitality in, uh, industry. In this, and just transition generally is a very useful perspective because it, it's kind of like, it's not about just how do you transition? How do you cut down to 7%? How do you make sure that you have carbon neutral activities? It's it's a bigger question about where we're going and, and why. And why are we cutting to 7%? What type of world do we want when we get to 7%? Because you could kill half the planet and reduce population that way. <laughs> and then you have your like 7% reductions, you know, or you have mass family planning strategies or all these kind of crackpot theories that are kind of popping up where you could pump the sky full of gas. It's, it's kind of like, where are we going and why? And with this just transition narrative, it's so useful because what countries like say the Ruhr Valley in Germany have done is that they knew that they had a very highly skilled coal workforce who were very good at unionizing, very good at coming together for collective action. Uh, the whole transition there and kind of coal roundtable talks where people were given very good redundancies and very good pay came from loads and loads of protests at the beginning of the action. Uh, so you have this kind of very highly paid, uh, very well unionized um, relatively kind of like strong area and they knew that they weren't going to it wasn't except they weren't going to attract call centers which is kind of what happened in in the in the valleys in england they knew they weren't going to uh, uh, attract kind of low businesses who were looking for kind of like a, a weak workforce desperate for anything they knew they had to invest in the area itself and use the skills in the area and the expertise in the area and build something new from that this focus on kind of tourism this focus on foreign direct investment attracting others into the area to do what you could have done yourself much better i think that that's kind of something we have to question here like i think that probably comes from kind of a post-colonial kind of thing that we're not good enough to develop something like the in the Ruhr Valley, what they did was they focused on sunrise technology. So they the coal company, obviously after having destroyed the environment for so long, actually had a huge store of expertise technically on how to restore land and how to restore it after something like coal or highly um, destructive practices. And they actually then began were able to develop a university based around environmental law and environmental technologies. They were able to use the uh, steel um, companies and steel lands to move into um, wind farms and move into renewable technologies like Siemens um, and kind of other kind of high, high net worth job kind of activities built from the area itself. Uh, and I think Yes, I, I'd like to see kind of more of that. And this kind of 7% cut year on year, um, I just don't think, like personally anyway, I think focusing on emissions reductions, the Greens need to learn from last time. They got a, a promise of 3%, 4% reductions last time in the programme for government, and it was never fulfilled because it's not attached to anything concrete. So personally, my focus would be how many peat re rehabilitation strategies are doing? How many houses are you going to retrofit? How many uh, fossil fuel projects are you going to cancel immediately? That kind of thing, for me, is more practical and pragmatic, really. Yeah, well, if I just follow up, uh, maybe you might have some thoughts on this, Sinead. Uh, I, I think there's two things in looking at the just transition 
the strategy. One thing that struck me with the NESC report on its just transition proposals was they made considerable emphasis on the fact that the solutions must be, you know, location-based. Mm. Uh, you know, dealing with the problems and dealing with the solutions because each each community, each region has their 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 strengths. You know, there, there's not one size that fits all. Uh, that can be determined by some centralized government. Mm -hmm. uh, and the real problem that we have is we don't have those kind of inst local institutions that can do that. We're a highly centralized state, um, uh, whereas uh, a huge portion of enterprise supports, you know, I'm referring to the continental countries, uh, a huge proportion of uh, enterprise supports and retraining supports and all that come through local and regional governments. Uh, only a fraction of it comes through here. So there isn't the capacity to mobilize the skills and the ideas of people at a local and regional level, you know, in terms of the institutions we currently have. Mm. And, and so that's the first thing. Uh, and secondly, is that um, uh, we don't, uh, we don't seem to, uh, we, we, don't, we don't seem to consider the role of workers themselves in generating these ideas and yeah. how they, they can collectively come together. And these, for instance, take the board of owner workers. Well, I mean, uh, no better group of people who probably got proposals on how to retool the equipment at board Nimona, how it can be, you know, put into kind of renewable technologies or other uh, socially productive activities, which can still be commercial but which you know, are refocused away from a fossil fuel-based uh, uh, activity. But the problem is that in the climate, uh, the climate strategy report that the government produced uh, last year, there's not one mention, not once is trade unions mentioned. Uh, I think it's a 200-page report. And workers are only mentioned in a most, you know, they play the most passive of roles where you know, we've got to figure out how to reskill these people, you know, that type of thing. Uh, we don't, we don't see them as being, well, you know, maybe, maybe they've got some ideas and maybe if they were, we work collectively, if they work collectively within local and regional institutions. And the problem is, whereas in the continental countries, they have those things, or at least, you know, not as good as they used to be, but better than us, we don't have them. And I think that's going to be, uh, that's going to shortchange us in terms of making this what's called a just transition. Yes, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, definitely. Um, so for the next report, I, I did four case studies of countries that have dealt with uh, transition for uh, climate reasons. And was, that, was that you? Was that, that you? Was me, okay. yeah, that was me. Okay. No, I, was, I fed into the overall report. So, okay, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. but, um, yes, yes. So mine was on the case studies, which then, that, that was a finding, really, that it, that it it's just so local-specific. And... Um, from a climate action perspective, uh, and as well from transitioning, from building something new in the region. Uh, and I mean, there was a, I'll, I'll focus, there's a, there are a host of reasons for that, but first, firstly, what you said there, which is, yes, a perfect, perfect example is Gordon Mona. I mean, I have a bunch of books here that I ordered actually just after finishing that report, because I was like, this is very odd. Um, I mean, from my interviews with people and from chatting with just, I, I didn't get to focus on Bordenamona specifically as a case study, 
Um, but just from kind of offhand dealing with people, the history of it is just incredible. I mean, even the worker kind of housing schemes, the kind of new focus on on um, how they should be built, this new idea of architecture, even Ordna Krusha and the ESB, um, the new state being built, and this kind of glorious kind of environmentally friendly, well, um, not it's not biodiversity friendly, there's still issues with the eels, but I mean, but in terms of climate change, it was amazing, and it was a whole reinvigoration of the self-esteem of the state, and the ESB itself has an amazing history, and it gets an awful lot of kind of focus, like kind of um, very detrimental, it's seen as kind of anti-progress, anti-wind, anti-all these things, and that kind of perspective just does not fly when you actually read the history of it. The rural electrification scheme, the fact that they went up places where I'm living here in Connemara, the backgrounds nowhere up in mountains in, in recess or in in the, the Man Turks and brought um and brought electricity there, though it would be no profit to the state. And it it's just I just found that very interesting that they are in Russia as well. They focused on um they had German expertise brought in in Siemens. But a lot of the expertise was kind of Galway hooker makers um, who were then used in, in particular parts of the building and um, local people who had particular skills were brought in. And then they built their skills and then went on to build the ESB, which the ESB at the time was um, world renowned for being incredibly energy efficient and incredibly good at it does. The ESB International, for example, goes around the world building um, power right, yeah, yeah. Some of them coal, which it shouldn't be doing, but <laughs> otherwise, but still very, very good, you know. Uh, and I just found that interesting. You have kind of, you do have this brilliant workforce there and totally, exactly as you said, Michael, this kind of very passive reaction to them. And I wonder, and the local institutions as well, um, I mean, you have this new local authorities in, in Offaly County Council, all around the Midlands, they have to come together and develop a just transition plan for the region, working with social partners and, and communities. But they've been decimated by cuts. I mean, they don't have, you would have maybe a heritage, um, one heritage expert in there who's maybe doing four or five other jobs and they have to take on this peat rehabilitation strategy. You have a NPWS, the National Parks and Wildlife Service, who also have to monitor this. And they have been decimated as well in cuts. And kind of, there doesn't seem to be any investment there in these state uh, bodies. And it, it's kind of, it's not just about putting money, dumping it into the region. Uh, it's about the, it's the institutions and local institutions with local people, local expertise and faith in those, in those kind of local structures uh, is what's most important. It's not money, it's faith in those people and trust. And I'm hoping now that that is kind of, that seems to be lacking generally in Ireland. I don't know whether it comes from a formerly colonial administration that hasn't much changed, but <laughs> it is it is something that definitely on the continent they do a bit better. Uh, Germany, for example, has one of the highest um, involvement of local authorities. Uh, and they, they have been held up again in all the literature I came across as a very good example of just transitions. So no, I'm totally with you there. And when you actually look at the companies that have privatized like electricity in Ireland, that have taken over those parts of the market, they're state companies from other countries, <laughs> whether it's Iberdrola, <laughs> you know, like Iberdrola in Spain is, um, is now getting involved in Irish wind and it's the Spanish public energy company, <laughs> or now it's kind of more commercialized, but it's the same with them. Um, 
uh, Airtricity, that, that was Scottish Power, that was a, a Scottish company. I just find it, I just find it so odd, you know. And th those companies also also have worse paying conditions for their workers. Uh, they're not allowed to unionize in the same manner that the ESB um, or Gordon Moon is. So I just don't really see the point of it. And it I, 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 I think this tells, this speaks to a larger story, which we can bring it back in terms of how we want to formulate uh, both policy and fiscal responses to, you know, to go to someplace better than going back to the to going back to the normal that we had prior to the crisis mm. and that that is that there was a belief in the idea of um, public initiative of public and collective initiative there was a confidence I mean you know people will find it kind of boring to listen to kind of stories mm. about boy Mona and ESB and I, I can understand <laughs> well, a lot of people might you know but uh, <laughs> Many of these things were, were 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 great exercises in a belief that you know people, whether it's at the no, local or national level, could together using the instrument of the state and not in a state statist fashion because these were public enterprises, but you know they 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 operated on commercial terms, so they were mm -hmm. in the market. Uh, they had to you know abide by the rules of the market and all that. But it was that idea that people working together could provide uh, these solutions. And we've kind of lost that. Wow, we lost that a long time ago. That's what neoliberalism does. It, uh, it hollows out not only the capacity of uh, people to work through the state or work through uh, local governments or regional governments or whatever public agencies that might be to resolve these problems, but then, uh, then they hollow out people's belief that it can be done. Mm -hmm. And it's actually trying to instill back into people uh, the idea that they can together, whether it's just in their workplace through collective bargaining, uh, or uh, whether it's at a, um, uh, whether it's kind of a, 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 a kind of a, a response of the community to whatever crisis they're facing, or in this case, uh, uh, a crisis that's impacting on the nation and and, and of course the world. Yes, um, there's a Michael probably knows him. There's, there's a great trade unionist called uh, Adrian Kane. I'm, I'm a big fan, but um, he has a brilliant speech that he reads out quite regularly uh, on board Namona because his family are all historically board Namona workers. But he he always says, um, "Where there be bogs, there be poverty, except for board Namona." And I think that's a that kind of understanding of Board Namona as this huge uplift for the for the region that the Offaly, like GAA teams, for example, had their their most wins during this period when Board Namona was was starting up and, and live and well, um, and now they're not as good anymore. <laughs> but like that kind of that understanding of our heritage, um, but moving into restoring that earth and bringing it back. Um, to something that that saves our planet or that looks after us, uh, but it, with good jobs and good uh, investment for the region. I'm always fascinated by this debate about, you know, and this was certainly the debate before the crisis and especially coming out of the last crisis, you know, that we had to uh, incentivize the entrepreneurs, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, the entrepreneurs would come in and save us from all sorts of evils, unemployment, low wages, lack of productivity, and all that. 
very much like those old cowboy films that I used to watch when I was a, a young kid on Saturday mornings. Uh, you know, it was just like that, that lone stranger. Uh, the fact is, we are all innovators. We are all entrepreneurs. We all have something to contribute. But the problem is that we do, we have neither the industrial uh, or the political institutions by which we can make those contributions. And in fact, just the opposite, they exclude us. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's actually, at the end of the day, it's a profound democratic expansion. We need as much as an expansion of our budget or as an expansion of enterprises or whatever, it's an expansion of, of democracy across the board uh, that is needed in this response. What happens afterwards when all the peat is gone? Yes, what will become of the bogland when in the distant future the last peat has been claimed, the last machine has left, and peace once more crowns its solitude? Will it be left just to the birds and its memories? No, it won't. Once the peat has all been cut away, it will be ready for a new lease of life, for afforestation or for agriculture. The land will be born again. So I'm here talking to Barry Claffey about her work, Isolation TV, which was created as a response to quarantine and social distancing during the, the current pandemic. And Barry has chosen and put these artist film works together in a number of episodes, and there's currently two, which you can watch on isolationtv.org. So hi, Barry, how are you doing? Hi. So tell us a little bit about Isolation TV. Um, you've created essentially uh, an online TV program featuring artist video works what was what was what kind of things were you thinking about when you when you came up with the idea well it happened it came into my mind very early on when I started to see this screenings cancelled and exhibitions cancelled um and I started to look at kind of what was happening around that and what that loss looked like mm -hmm. and it was mainly about the loss of those spaces and the uh, the ways of looking at work and encountering work and actually the need for it at this moment because uh, art and, and is something that we turn to it's it's a it's a kind of moment of conversation it's a mm -hmm. moment of linking and it's also like really involved in gathering and we see how much gathering is a part of looking at artworks in theater so I wanted to hold on to the idea of gathering and, and gathering the works together and gathering around looking at them so that was why I decided to do it in in a program as opposed to in a series of sort of individual screenings because um I'm looking at the way that sort of television encourages a kind of remote gathering kind of um, communities around like particular yeah. tv programs and yeah in a way you know what we all do at this moment is we take what is to hand um so i worked with artists whose work i knew well or particular works that i knew well for the first one that that were about the moment of a kind of isolation um in various different ways to do with the kind of specific kind of lockdown creativity we have which is in which is in marcus graff's work when he starts when he makes all these very complex sculptural works mm. but they, they look they kind of mimic child's play in terms of using what so there's two episodes so far and this is the this is in the first one which is kind of was more of like about the immediate response that we all are having or have had to being locked up in our houses at that point when i very first started doing it like the, the sort of disease hadn't really hit but i mean i started to get sick actually and so i was self-isolating for two weeks and that is sort of it came into my mind then but I was able to kind of mobilize that quite fast just because that's often how I work and because I often work in series of series of screenings 
Um, and one of the things that happened very quickly was when I had the idea, um, I talked to somebody that I'd worked with quite a lot. And there was a lot of kind of communication between professionals at that moment as well, just checking in with each other, how we were all doing. Um, and I got phone calls from people that, that I'm very friendly with and I've, co- I've done a lot of co-working with, but you wouldn't necessarily communicate a lot of the time. So I, I talked to Seamus Keeley, who's the director of the Salzburg Kunstverein, and he immediately said that he would support it. And it kind of became their online piece of programming yeah. during COVID. And it expanded and he helped me to expand with other partners. And then I found other partners and it, mm. it sort of built a little armature around it. Yeah. Kind of creating this platform, essentially, that's beyond yourself. It's beyond an institu- yeah. individual institution, but it is ex- exists as a platform for showing work. Yeah, so I'm the curator a lot of the time of the episodes, but we have a collaboration with a, with a film collective called Golden Pixel. And there are a lot of curators who are involved in various different ways as partners in the programme, and that operates quite differently depending on the institution that they work with and what they need from it. Great. And then, so just if, to go back to the first episode, just maybe tell us a little, a couple of the pieces, describe one or two of them. So, yeah, one of the earlier people that I selected was, was Mariah Garnett because she her feature film Trouble, which is showing now in Belfast, had been cancelled and we went back through works of hers that fit into this time and she's made this very odd little film that the script of which comes from spam emails and so as you're listening to these kind of familiar uh tropes come through these kind of familiar things that happen through spam like the sending money somewhere or the penis enlargement or those these kinds of conversations but the actors are so good that it takes a very long time to recognize this very familiar language and it's those kinds of things that would become sort of becomes slightly obsessive when you're alone and she's filmed them alongside Zabriskie Point and they, the aesthetics of this scene with the with the very kind of personal spam email things like it's really surreal and very beautiful film and um, things are getting a bit surreal at the moment yeah and there's a kind of the memory of the outdoors and mm. the memory of landscape being kind of chopped apart by these really precise and kind of slightly nasty little spam emails it's really nicely done Okay, so why don't we listen to a little clip from that? Um, this is Signal by Mariah Garnett. How are you? I hope you remember me. I'm going crazy. Nothing works for me anymore. I need a second job if I'm going to survive. You're awake. This is not a dream. I'm not telling anyone this story. I was nearly in tears. It was 3 a.m. in the morning when it happened. It happened in Starbucks. I was nearly in tears. It was pitch black inside. The whole room was dark. The only light came from my computer monitor. For your attention, your nightlife needs enhancing. It took the whole night. I really faced a dilemma. That one was really appropriate. And then an, an older film of Loretta Farnholtz an Austrian filmmaker, that was so appropriate as well because she'd filmed a family in in isolation as that family in their apartment and filmed all their activities. And one of them was an actor who had been in Rainer Werner Fassbinder films, but she, like Loretta was joking that he's kind of the worst actor in, in her <laughs> film. And, but at the start of that film, that, that she's, a, she's a little graphic and it says, my lungs, my air, I can't breathe. And it's you know, again, about the stif- how stifling it is to be in an apartment, but at the same time, it's re- it was really relevant to COVID because I'm get- I, was, I mean, I don't know if I had COVID, but I certainly had some difficulties breathing during that time. So it was really, you know, they all felt really appropriate. 
Yeah, and stif- everyone, I guess, is feeling quite stifled at the moment. Yeah. Um, so then episode two is more, it's kind of a, maybe more about our relationship with the outside world, less about the domestic, maybe more about um, both other people and what we think about as, as important or valuable or precious. There's also some works in galleries about kind of what we consider as precious within the world of art. Um, I really like Carol Burke's piece, Union which is just a, quite a short piece, but it's like a, of a scene of a quarry and it's really still and it's really beautiful and sort of nature's taking it over again. And then all of a sudden from out of shot, you see, you see these stones being thrown in. Um, and it's kind of an interruption or a disruption, but you don't know where the stones are coming from or you don't know who's throwing them. And I guess for me, that kind of reminded me of the situation at the moment. Yeah. It's all a bit like, where is this coming from? When's it going to stop? But then it does stop and then it goes back to this kind of quiet. Yeah, I mean that was that that film of Carl's. Carl Carl would much more often make um, physical sculpture that deals with landscape, but he made that film for a project that I did in in Leitrim, um, in in Drummer Hare, um, mm-hmm. and it's very nearby. It's Union Woods, very nearby there, and it's, it's yeah. So the stones get thrown in, and there's that that kind of action into the landscape, that kind of compulsive human action of kind of performing yourself making yourself bigger increasing your own performance within that landscape and then leaving and everything settles back down to the way to the yeah. way that it was so i guess it's like to me it's a it's this yeah what are the stones what's the disruption what's the disruption this the, the loudness of them and the vo- suddenly vulnerable quite huge thing yeah. um they all really resonated with with what i was trying to talk about about what it is that we're all quieting down in order to protect we're all a lot of the focus on protection has been around older people about cocooning um so then we have this the, another piece in it called um tame time about i suppose there's often a rhetoric around protecting older people but actually in, in real life perhaps a lot of the time we don't value the experiences of older people or so that that woman is is talking about walking her dog or a series of dogs that she's all called by the same name um but she, she's describing her local environment. Maybe you just tell us a little bit about that piece. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, she talks about, the, it's very different. It's urban. And, and so she's, she's, she has this very familiar landscape that's around her house and the dogs, she's clearly somebody who values a familiarity because they do all have the same name. They're all called Ro, uh, Rosa. And, mm. you know, says, I'm sorry, it's Stina, Stina Verfeldt. Stina Verfeldt, yeah. Um, so, that, yeah, the dogs are all called the same name. The same now, but she says that the dogs tame time for her. They kind of, because obviously, at a certain point in her life, she feels that time is really racing and that she doesn't, you know, that it's something she doesn't have control over. But then that that um, that is manifest in terms of some changes in her immediate landscape that happen through some kind of corporate building that she's very unprepared for, and suddenly a wall goes up, and the streets are no longer that they no longer belong to her and her dog and the rest of the community. You know, within it, there, there's sort of there's this reveal about the rest of the relationships that she's built up around her environment and how they feel protective towards her and her relationship with them and her dog's relationship with them. Mm. And then she begins to talk to other people around this and, and, and then maps start appearing into the film mm. because people start to begin to try to describe and explain it to her, this sudden thing that's happened. And as they're doing that, their own trauma kind of comes up for themselves. And that felt really appropriate too, is that the, the initial ideas were protecting other people but then obviously there's 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 protection of ourselves and there is the traumatic and the sense of loss around all those things that yeah. that I felt that that film really kind of spoke to. 
I really, really thought it was beautiful. Yeah, so we play a little clip from that now. Sure. It's the dog days. My life's been full of dog days. I've had dogs since I was a little girl. The best thing about them is the routine and structure they give your life. It's almost as if having a dog tames time, puts you in control of it. All my dogs have been called Rosa. Well, some people make a fuss about this, but to me it makes perfect sense. I used to try and come up with another name, but it just seemed like a waste of time. A name is just a name, and anyway, Rosa's my dog. Me and Rosa have three walks. The morning walk, the evening walk, and the special walk. Initially you thought maybe you'd do one a week. What kind of made you change your, your thoughts about that? Uh, there was a kind of digital clamour that I didn't want to and couldn't keep up with. Um, like in my conversations with Owen Dara, who's the literary writer who's involved in it, we agreed that we would never complain to each other about being late back to an email because everybody is going through such radically different things. And so I felt that rather than make a speedy response, I wanted to make a considered response and, mm -hmm. and work through things quite slowly, which meant, again, not just taking what's to hand, but actually looking really appropriately into the things that I wanted to say um, about loss and about, you know, one of the things you mentioned about the kind of relationship between how it is that we protect older artworks mm -hmm. and what they contain for us and how we protect older artists and the people who make those works um, and that entire kind of conversation. So there was a lot of piecing together of those. Um, so finally, just to wrap up, like the audience is very important to you and yeah. it has, it's, I think, from what I've read about your, your previous work, um, how do you think this is going to affect, like this turn into the digital during this period? Do you think it's going to have long-term effects on how you engage with art? No, somebody pointed out that there's already been internet art and there's also already been post-internet art. So the sort of digital turn is not it's not a new thing. It's just a, it's a new thing on this scale, and it's a new it's a very new thing for museums. Um, and but I'm like the, my turn. I turn all the time to all of these things that that are methods of distribution and methods of engagement that I try to borrow from from other art forms. So like one of the things I always think is a shame is how well people know music because they hear it at home. And if you go back to the history of the gramophone record that enabled black communities to be able to to put music onto record and the distribution of black music was something that happened that massively increased over this time. So you didn't have to go privately into parlors that were kind of controlled in a very specific way. So that was a huge uh, sort of social, political, civil. Um, that came from a technology. Civic moment that came out of a technology. So I think, you know, I always want to, look at what I'm really interested in looking at ways that we can both support support artists and hold on to the institutions into which work is shown and into, into which we work but also to find other avenues into things. Thanks very much Vary um, and if you want to check out Isolation TV you can watch episode two which is called A Most Sensitive Nucleus on isolationtv.org. So that's nearly it for the very first episode of Nervous State. Thanks once again to all our contributors for taking the time to chat to us. If you like what you've heard, please let us know. And as always, support independent media by, by subscribing to Urban Digital Radio if you're in a position to do so. And we're finishing today's show with a special contribution from Ellen Duggan on field recordings, reflecting on the shift in sonic landscapes over the, the, the past months of lockdown. So I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you back here at the same time next month.
Hi, my name is Ellen, and I'm going to be talking a bit about field recordings. So, the beginning piece I played was recorded by someone called Tim Hinman, and it is of an emergency siren test in Copenhagen that takes place once a year at exactly noon, and you can listen to it on fieldrecordings.xyz. The piece currently playing beneath me is by the ornithologist Gene C. Roche, from his record Birds of Venezuela. So I wanted to explore field recording slightly as we have watched their function and prominence shifting during the pandemic. So with Birds of Venezuela, you understand the function of close listening in order to identify species through the medium of field recordings, in order to record what can't be traditionally notated. And this invites us into areas we may never visit.